Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today we look at the recent European Parliament elections, particularly in the context of the UK and what it means for Brexit. We'll go back to our own federal election and the fate of the minor parties and what that tells us about the state of politics in Australia. And we'll also have a look at recent proposals to ask protesters, such as those who were in the Adani convoy to Queensland, do they have jobs or are they perhaps living off the taxpayer? And what should we do about that, if anything? As always, we'll close with our books and cultures segment. And today our panellists will talk about the latest version of Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, another classic book on how constitutions work, Foxtel's new show about the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, and finally, Troy Bramston's monumental new work on Robert Menzies. So, but first of all, a big welcome to our panellists, my co-host, Dr Chris Berg from RMIT University. Morning, Scott. Great to have you back in the studio, Chris, after your adventures in America. And at the adventures is a strong word, but yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, two conferences in a row, whatever. Uh, also, my colleague, IPA Research Fellow, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Good on you, mate. And finally, our senior fellow and long-time ornament to the IPA, Richard Allsop. Always a pleasure, Scott. Great to have you back. But we are going to start with the EU elections. Chris Berg, what happened? So, of course, there are elections to the European Parliament. Um, uh, there were 70, sorry, not 70, 751 seats up for grabs, 28 uh, different countries obviously um, uh, contributing to that. There are lots of interesting ways to interpret that. There, this is really, I mean, it's 28 separate countries, so fundamentally it's 28 separate elections. But the the headline stuff I think we can say is that populist and nationalist parties, which everybody is expecting to um, uh, dominate and have dominated or have have um, really grown over the last couple of years. They did well in some countries, uh, more poorly in other countries. They did well in Italy, France and Hungary, for instance. Uh, they did less well in Denmark and Germany. Um, in the UK, which is, of course, particularly interesting because of um, uh, Brexit and the proposal to leave the European Union and, by extension, the Parliament, uh, Nigel Farage's new Brexit party actually won a massive um, uh, amount of seats, 20 Nine seats. The Liberal Democrats won 16 seats. The Liberal Democrats now being the anti-Brexit party, fundamentally. Labor won 10, um, a few others. But the Tories, the Conservative Party, only won four seats in the European Parliament. Happily, one of those is a um, very close friend of the Institute of Public Affairs and, of course, strong Brexiteer Dan Hannan. Um, the hard right, or, or UKIP in this case, um, UKIP I, I would not have in the past described as hard right, but they're now hard right. And um, they did kind of poorly. They didn't get up Tommy Robertson and a bloke who goes on the internet by the name of Sargon of Akkad. But this is an interesting election. I wonder what the significance of it, given that um, A, of course, the Europe, the um, United Kingdom is going to leave the European Union, so you might as well vote for a Brexit party. But it's also, you can vote in the European elections without hoping for basic social services. It's it, it, it The European Parliament isn't a parliament as we understand it. It's not delivering services. I'd be interested though, um, Andrew, what your take is, particularly on this mixed picture for the sort of populist national or national conservative um, movements across Europe. The first thing I would say about this is that, and I, I wrote this in um, in the IPA review a couple of years ago um, when this this populist thing started happening. Um, my preferred name for this is just conservatism. <laughs> I think. Um, well, what, conservatism did badly then in that sense. Well, in, well in, because well, what I what I think is that um, you know uh, up until the end of the Cold War, we had a kind of alliance between um, people whose deepest philosophical commitments were liberal. Uh, and people whose deepest philosophical commitments were conservative. Um, and what we're seeing now is that ha because the circumstances have changed and because the, the threat um, to social order as conservatives perceive it has changed, they are changing themselves. Um, and so conservatism is re-emerging. This is, this is the thesis that I wrote in the, the IPA review, that conservatism has re-emerged in its own right. Um, and so... What we're actually seeing here, I think, is the reason I would say that the name matters is because I don't see this as some sort of novel uprising of far-right nationalism or something like that. I see it as um, a traditional conservative expression of um, place-based uh, system of rights, of law, um, where people are saying 
like national identity is important as a part of what it means to have a home and that's what people are responding to the idea that they're no longer they no longer feel at home where they should feel at home yeah but, and, it, that, but and that explains this di- why the dynamic is slightly different in different countries because for example that force that is is much stronger uh, in in the United Kingdom and specifically in England England and Wales are both for brexit uh, Scotland is not um, and so it depends on those kind of local circumstances that have always fed into conservative politics. But it is, I mean, different in that sense. So I, I understand your your argument that conservatism and these new national populists are um, uh, 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 are roughly the same, but something's definitely changed, mm. right? Mm. So, I mean, the Tories have four seats, whereas the Brexit Party, a party that was invented yesterday, has 29 seats. So there's obviously mm. been a really big shift. Now, if I'm understanding you right, that would say that the shift has been on the conservative, the, the traditional liberal conservative side. Well, the, the problem is that the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom is not conservative. It doesn't act as a conservative party. It doesn't seem to care. Peter Hitchens has been very strong on this for at least 10 years. Um, he reckons that the United Kingdom would have been better off um, if uh, David Cameron uh, had never won an election um, because it would have destroyed the Conservative Party and they might have had a real Conservative Party, a small-c <laughs> Conservative Party. Um, and so that's the, that's the niche that, is, that has opened up for someone like Nigel Farage, and the case that he is making is essentially a conservative one. We have these institutions, we have this pattern of life, this way of life, this way of governing ourselves, and it is now under threat from the European Union. Mm. And I think it's hard to dispute, at least at that top level, like his top level analysis, I think it's hard to dispute his thesis. This this to me is a fascinating debate because I think it shows there's been this huge shift in what what some people perceive as the key purpose of the Liberal Conservative project. David Cameron, as Prime Minister, had bigger cuts to public expenditure and reducing the size of government than any leader in modern history. You know, he worked on a huge austerity program, which for those on the free market right, you know, should have seen him embraced as, you know, truly one of ours. But because of now the politi- where the, the real emphasis of conservatives seems to be these other issues that aren't directly economically related, he's treated as some sort of um, pariah. I've, I think it's a fascinating debate where the, and I agree with Andrew a bit that you know, in a sense, the Cold War papered over a lot of things, you know, that brought together a whole range of people under a broad umbrella. But now we see this real fracturing between, um, you know, trying to defining what conservatism is, what liberalism is, and how, and, and I think the European elections just spell this out enormously, that this rise in different um, parties in different ways. And I think the performance of Liberal Democrats in England is really interesting for a, a party that's sort of a Liberal and is still in a, cent- a centrist party have done particularly well by being hardline on one, on the one key issue. You know, they're the most explicitly anti- anti-Brexit party, therefore that they're at least seen as genuine and attracting votes. And I think if there's any message of the EU election of a broader things, it's people who stand for something who are attracting votes, be it the parties of the right, the Greens, the Liberal Democrats, because of the particular circumstances in England. So whereas anybody who's at all, you know, a bit wishy-washy, if you like, in their positions, you know, gets absolutely smashed but at these, the polls. But these are one policy parties, right? Yes. So, and, and what what has happened to the Liberal Democrats in its in its new mm. iteration is that it has become that one policy uh, party. Yeah, so yeah. you've got a pro-Brexit party yep. and you've got a anti-Brexit mm. party and, and, you know, Nigel Farage is um, brilliant by calling his party the Brexit mm. party if you want Brexit, yeah. vote for the Brexit party. Yeah. And, and you know, once Brexit is done, that the yeah. rationale... Well, and yeah, the Liberal Democrats actually had, I saw one brilliant Liberal Democrat thing which says... The one explicitly anti-Brexit party is us, and all these other people will tolerate Brexit. Yeah, but that, <laughs> but that but that really puts. I'm sorry, Bushy, but that puts your argument to the sword. This isn't about conservatism. It's actually about uh, the voters decided, particularly in this election, where they can unambiguously. It was and the, uh, the Brexit party versus the anti-Brexit party. It, it mm. was it was Nigel Farage's Brexit party versus. The Lib Dem. So I, I don't think it's a it's a conser- uh, philosophical movement at all. And it's not and, and mm. Chris, it's not one policy. 
This is absolutely critical. How can you talk about European politics without saying that the most important issue is the relationship between the nation-state and this supranational institution that uh, has a life of its own, you know, what's the uh, ever in closer union or whatever? The, uh, yeah, no, because, ever, because, ever closer union. It, no, it is the issue. It's, it's not just like a policy on whether they should have fun childcare a little bit more than they did. It's absolutely fundamental. It is. I, I understand the symbolic mm. importance of um, Brexit and I understand that there will be long-term practical implications of Brexit down the track. But right now, to vote in the European Parliament, if you're voting in the United Kingdom, certainly, to vote in the European mm. Parliament is the definition of expressive voting. I want Brexit, therefore I... like mm. Because the Parliament, the European Parliament doesn't do anything but intervene it doesn't build roads and schools and hospitals it doesn't fund um, important social services it doesn't privatize or nationalize the railroads well, it doesn't it, it certainly doesn't direct the EU commissioners no no it, it's the other it, way around. It, it is mm. it is the it is the I mean it, remember the brexit criticism of the European institutions is correct this is fantasy democracy it doesn't it's not mm. a real thing and I think the European, or so the United Kingdom voters have actually been convinced of that. It doesn't really matter who you vote mm. for, so you might as well vote for Brexit Party because you want Brexit. Mm. This is the. I'm so. I'm the <laughs> this is the. This is the thing about Brexit, and this is the reason why it's dragged on for so many years. Is that there's a failure to engage with why people voted for it in the first place, and that's that's my point. Why vote for Brexit? Why get out of the European Union? The reason is that you, you believe in your own country as a home for you, for people like you who act in the ways that you expect so that you feel comfortable going about your own life, raising your own family. This is all very deeply conservative ideas about what it is that the state exists for. I thought it was about oppressive banana legislation and regulation on around those sorts of things. But and that's the point. <laughs> but that's the point because this is... Well, this Cor- Corbyn's pro-Brexit because he wants to be able to introduce socialism yeah, in one, one country. country. Yes. I mean, that's, that he, he's, he thinks Orwell was actually, uh, you know, mm. he, he read Orwell's 1984 and he thought, oh, it looks mm. pretty good. Yep. I'll grow a moustache. <laughs> and then he got carried away and got a beard. You know, it's like, that's what he wants. Corbyn still wants uh, a home that he recognises. This is this is the point. This is the o- this is the the overlapping consensus between traditionally Labor voters and all of the people who have deserted yeah. the Conservative Party. This is this is a, a, a deeper philosophical point about why have a country, yeah. why have a state. Do you, do you think the other twenty seven countries should leave the EU as well? I don't think the European Union should exist. Here, here. <laughs> what, what, what was it originally? It was a coal and steel union. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. where it should have stayed. It was mm. a European economic community, and mm. as a as a free trade zone and a free and trade zone, it's something sh- to prevent you know further wars in Europe, and you know it's yep. it's as a that's what I believe the, the, too. The, that it got to Euro- the European Union is a, a, a act of positivist fantasy. This idea that we can just promulgate black letter law and everyone will just conform to it without recognizing that. Even the blackest of black letter law exists within a much more complex network of meanings. Um, the European Union tries to get around this by borrowing from the Catholic Church the idea of subsidiarity. But in practice, in practice, that hasn't worked. And we know it hasn't worked because voters across the continent are saying there's not enough subsidiarity. So when you take someone like uh, Salvini in Italy, he's not actually saying that the European Union shouldn't exist or that Italy should leave European yeah, they, Union. they pulled back from that, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. He's saying that, no, the European Union needs to return to its original purpose and return sovereignty over a lot of yeah. things to the states. And so there, there are different arguments here, but it's all in service of the same thing, which is uh, this idea of, of sovereignty, whether popular or not, um, this idea that we're all engaged in making a country amongst ourselves and that this can't happen across national borders. I, I, I think there's there's two Brexits here. There's two Brexit arguments, and, and that's that's the conservative Brexit argument. or It's not even... A, that's the popular 
Brexit argument, I suspect, but there's also the liberal Brexit argument, which is that we, we, the Europeans, have created just a massive regulatory state with no mm. real democratic control over it. Um, it is a caricature of the modern state. All control, no responsibility. Um, it's deeply bureaucratic. It's deeply politicised. It's a massive suck of money. Um, and that was a very significant argument. I'm not saying it was the dominant argument, but it was a very significant strand of the Brexit claim. And I, I, I'm much more sympathetic to that one than a sort of um, uh, a return to to sort of nationalist conservatism or um, mm. just a return to um, uh, feelings of sovereignty. Mm. Sovereignty is important and sovereignty is important because it makes you feel, it, because it means that you're part of a democratic community. But the big problem with the European Union wasn't um, that sort of metaphysical issue. It was it, it, and, and mm. still is the deep regulatory, bureaucratic, political, and undemocratic yeah. control yeah, of the I think economy. it's a very important, and I completely agree with what Chris has said. And I think we have to be very careful. I mean, if you look at history in the 19th century, in some way, and in some ways we're sort of repeating a bit of this, we had this great period in the middle 19th century where the world was of this great flowering of liberalism and free trade and breaking down of national borders, and you look like you're having this whole liberal Europe. And then late in the 19th century, we have this rise of nationalism, Bismarck in Germany being the example, and then other countries following along from that. We get the rise of imperialism, and gradually the build-up of protectionism, which ultimately leads to the First World War. So I think we do have to be careful in somehow denigrating this the, the liberal internationalist world, because... That was the great world that people like Cobden in the mid-19th century were working towards. And I think people of a liberal background, that's what we, we want. Now, the EU is a distortion of this transnationalism by being a vast bureaucratic, undemocratic state. But at the same time, we, I think we should be careful not to, in our dislike of that, to go away from liberal internationalism, which I think in the periods when we've had that in the, the middle part, developing in the middle part of the 19th century and perhaps again at the end of the Cold War, moving away from that I think is a big mistake. Yeah, yeah. I, I th sorry, just to jump in. I think that's a very important point because uh, liberal internationalism, you know, its real flowering was in, you know, the, the rubble of, you know, Berlin, the Bretton Woods mm. Agreement, the, the international institutions mm. and uh, the UN is of course a disgrace, but you know, it was a good idea and remains a good idea in theory at least. Um, but these were international institutions. It was a liberal international mm. order. And it's, it's funny when you talk to Europeans, like the idea of transnationalism is completely confused by the EU because mm. yes. it's this, this intermediate thing. There's layers of, of trans, transnationalism and, and I, I really do think that that is the causation. It's not that the old politics is breaking down and hence the EU has called into question. I think the EU is actually breaking politics in Europe. Mm. That's the chain of causation. Mm. And that's that's my compare and contrast, which we will do in a minute, is Australia. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, I think the thing too, we have to always ask, if even if, if we believe Brexit is going to be good for the United Kingdom, is Brexit going to be good for the remainder of the EU? You know, and I think in Australia we tend to focus a lot on what the outcome will be for the UK, given naturally given our heritage. But clearly you would think that the UK leaving the EU is not going to improve the EU for the other 37 <laughs> countries. Well, no, I, I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, if you're on the fringe of the, the core of the EU, then, Eng then the United Kingdom leaving could be a, a bad thing. Mm. Because, but if you're, in, if you're an internationalist, if you're a, a Macron voter in France, and there's fewer and fewer of those, but... Um, if you support, I think yeah, last, if you, if you support Macron or the uh, the project of the Christian Democrats in Germany, the exit of the biggest skeptic about the European Union within the Union, which is the United Kingdom, might actually lead to a, a greater consolidation of power within the European Union. And then, if that actually does play out, and France and Germany do take advantage of that, then the tension on the fringe, and I mean Italy's not a fringe country either, um, will get worse. So. It could go. It could go either way. I mean, the United yeah. Kingdom leaving could actually be good for the European Union, or at least for the Eurocrats. No, I mean, I, th yeah. I think it'll be good for the Eurocrats, but it actually it actually makes for a worse European Union. I, I have told this story on the podcast mm. before, but um, uh, Sweden, as the other really big free trade, mm. um, not big, for, as the really other passionate free trade 
relatively low regulation state mm. in the European Union was devastated when Brexit happened because they had lost not just their major ally, but their major, um, you know, the UK is a huge ally and was able to stack European institutions with relatively free market, relatively mm. centre-right people. Um, I, I, to, to wrap this up, though, I think it is also just worth noting that um, on the liberal Brexit side, mm. there's a very good chance that the next UK Prime Minister will be very much from that liberal Brexit team, which would be Boris Johnson or maybe even Dominic Raab or, or someone like that. And that that is a positive thing. We might We might have much more of a liberal Brexit leadership rather than otherwise. Um, so anyway, to, to, to move on, um, uh, Scott's given me the um, aggressive wind up over there. Um, what I thought it would be interesting to talk about, particularly in this context, is um, the performance of the minor parties in the last Australian federal election. And Scott, you had a rather magnificent piece, I thought, in The Spectator Australia with the um, uh, controversial headline, Minor Parties Are Now Major Parties. Um, Scott, could you tell us about that? Uh, it's a great headline from the, the specy. Um, and uh, I, I worry when you say it was a magnificent article because that usually <laughs> means you're then going to tell me why I was wrong. going to smash it around. But anyway, no, this came out of the podcast last week. For those who are listening to Looking Forward, I mentioned that I'd seen an article somewhere where somebody just starts banging on again about, oh, you know, more disillusioned the break breakup of Australian politics. Twenty five percent of the population voted for minor parties, and you know it's all going to hell in a handbasket. And I said this uh, didn't sound right. So I, I then, having having said that, I thought, well, let me actually look up the numbers. Let let's actually do some research. So I went back to the <laughs> AEC website, and and yeah, I, I I think that that trope is is tired. And this is why I said compare and contrast to the EU, ALP. Uh, seems to be stuck in the low 30s on its vote. Um, Liberals seem to be stuck in the low 40s, but this is still significant. But to say that everyone else is minor parties and imply that it's some kind of a protest vote, and and what I'm really interested in is um, institutionalisation. I think just having calling something a minor party because of the share of the vote doesn't work. The Greens have been around for two, three decades. They always get at least 10% more or less... Um, you know, that's that's not minor. That, th- these are big numbers. And then, of course, everybody's confused anyway because they always count the... Uh, I just did it then, actually. Sorry, it's not the Liberals uh, in the low 40s. It's the Coalition. So they quote the Coalition, Labor, and then all the others are minor parties. But the Coalition includes the National Party. So you would call the National Party a minor party, except you always count it as part of the Coalition. And then... And this is um, what got the spectator exercise, of course. You've got something like One Nation. Pauline Hanson's been at this for you know, nearly 30 years now. And they've got, they're represented in four parliaments. You know, over, over 300,000 votes. Uh, Clive Palmer got over 400,000 votes. But just for, say One Nation for a sec. Um, they, this is an institutional part of the Australian landscape. Just dismissing it by saying, oh, it's minor parties, it's irrelevant. Uh, I think really misunderstands Australian politics. I don't think this is about disruption. I think people are actually lining up and uh, and I'll ask an open question actually too. Like the United Australia Party, everyone uh, is saying, oh, isn't it terrible that Clive Palmer was buying votes? Well, have we thought about the possibility <laughs> that, the, that, the only, <laughs> that the over 400,000 people who voted for them actually liked some of his messages? Yeah, look, look, look I, I don't know whether my, I, I take your point whether minor party is the right word to say, but there's something qualitatively different between the, quote, major parties and, and whatever these minor parties we should call them. Because quite apart from the amount of votes they've gotten, that there's some things I've been trying to think, what, what, what brings them together? What makes them, um, what, what's consistent across all of them? Um, they've got very low quality organisational structures. Um, so their membership, their administration um, is either in development or very unlikely to ever develop. Um, they've got they tend to have very narrow um, geographic bases as well. So one nation roughly concentrated in Queensland and um, New South Wales. One uh, sorry, uh, Clive Palmer's United Australia Party very much a Queensland. Um, uh, thing and they've got a very heavy focus on the personality of their leaders and as we know the big problem with one nation organizationally has always been it depends on how Pauline Hansen is going at any any one moment now the question then is what what is the significance of that we seem to have a permanent stock of minor parties of which 
One Nation is probably always going to be one of them or some One Nation successes. What does that mean for the dynamics of Australian politics? I, th- I think what it says is that voters have gotten used to the the preference system. That they, they know they can vote for these parties, but their votes will eventually cycle through to an actual party of government. I mean, I would say that the main qualitative difference between these parties and the major parties, and I agree that major minor might not be the best terminology, um, but um, the, the main qualitative difference between them is that some have an intention to govern, an intention to uh, present a broad policy platform that can be implemented, and others are tr- the others are trying to drag those platforms in their direction. So the Greens, the Greens have only ever had, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they've only ever had at any one time one member of the House of Representatives, um, and then they always have a handful of senators um, who have been very influential, but they're not there to they're not there expressly to govern the country even when they ended up in coalition with the Labor Party that was a fluke um, similarly it's not the ambition of any of the the old Queensland protectionist right in all of its various forms to govern the country notwithstanding Joe for PM <laughs> um, that the the idea is the idea is to drag the party of government on the centre-right. Well, Clive Palmer was mm. very specific. He was running to be Prime Minister. Mm. Well, the, the, well the, the, the old, the ex post facto explanation from Clive Palmer is very convenient, you know, that he succeeded because he got the right yeah. result. Yeah. Look, I, I actually think the terms, I suppose I disagree with you, Scott, I actually think the terms major and minor parties work quite well. Um, I mean, in Australia, particularly seeing effectively we've had the same major party structure since at least the end of the First World War with the formation of the Country Party, which became the National Party. Obviously, the main non-Labor Party changed its name a few times, but at least since the Second World War, it's been the Liberal Party. So we have this uh, divide between, on the one hand, the Liberal and National Parties forming government, on the other hand, the, the ALP forming government, and that's the way it's been in Australia for all that time. And, it, and it, over that period, say, since the Second World War, we've had a, some significant minor parties. Obviously, after the split in the Labor Party, we had the DLP getting up close to 10% of the vote for a number of elections until their vote collapsed in the early 1970s. Then we had the Australian Democrats, who started off with a bang in 1977, getting almost 10% of the vote, and then had a huge election. You know, they, they went along at a a reasonable level for a while, had a very big result in 1990 where they got over 10% of the vote, um, almost got Janine Haynes into the House of Representatives, but but didn't. Then they then had their ups and downs. Um, similarly, the Greens began to rise around the start of this um, century, um, been around now for quite a while. The vote peaking, um, I think the 2010 election was their high watermark, getting close to 12% of the vote, but stable around that level. One Nation, ups and downs. Um, so, you know, these parties are a, a part of the system. Um, it's rare to have the situation, say, we had by 1975, where we didn't really have a minor party on the, the scene between the collapse of the DLP and before the Democrats but started. That- so, but having said that, there is absolutely there is no doubt that it, that that share of the vote, while it's been significant at different times and it's gone up and down, the trend is definitely for that that rise of the the, the vote for the parties that um, are not. The, the two traditional governing blocks is now has continued to rise, and this election it looks like being the highest that it has ever been. And so I think that is a, that whatever you explanation you give to that, it's still I think a significant point. So I, I have an explanation, and and we were um, a few of us were at the Libertarian Society Friedman Conference mm. over the um, weekend, and I gave a presentation on. Um, uh, in fact, it was part of a panel on the future of the Liberal Party. But the the story that I told, which I, I think is important in this, is um, th- this is going on at the same time as we've got massive declines in membership mm. for the par- for the major parties themselves. So the Liberal Party after World War II had 200,000 members. It now claims it's got 80,000 members. I don't believe that for a second, but that's what they claim. The Labor Party once had 75,000 members, plus, you know, of course, massive union membership. Um, now... Now it has significantly less than that. Then there's the rise of the third parties. And I think there's a couple of things going on here. And I know Richard and I have talked about this, possibly on the podcast um, in the past. But, you know, parties do different things now than they used to 
in uh, in previous eras, and we expect different things from the parties. So, in the post World War II period, we expected political parties to be community groups mm-hmm. that you would find your um, marital partner in. Um, uh, so they were dating services as much as anything mm-hmm. else. Um, but we also we expect different things from political parties these days because we expect different things from every service in the economy. So you go into the supermarket. And you see 30 different brands of lettuce or brands of toothpaste. Whereas if you go into the voting booth, you're told that you have a choice of one of two. Mm. You can vote Liberal or you can vote Labor. Now, I I think quite understandably, consumers, political consumers, are angry about that lack of variety. And so they're attracted to things that are much more niche. And I I would argue, Uh, you know, uh, you even get the things, you know, like something like a boutique beer, which I would say, you know, Indi is probably the best example. Like Indi is... a boutique beer. (laughs) Yeah, well, it is in a way because it's Indi, something happened in Indi that hasn't happened before where one one independent was able to bequeath the seat to another independent. Mm. Now, that's pretty significant. In the past, independents have for, for been able to win a seat for a variety of reasons, but as soon as they left, well, it went back to the major party. Ted Mack in North Sydney, suddenly he retired. Joe Hockey got the, the seat that he otherwise wouldn't have got. Yeah. That's what Anybody not named Catter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Phil, you know, for people, that's it. Whereas here, you have the passing on of a seat. So they've actually, it's created a new brand, if you like, of something, a regional brand, that's specific to that area. That people in that area like buying into that brand. Yeah, but this, this so so everything Chris said is is true, but not to the point about you know that you d- you don't you don't necessarily find your marriage partners in parties, and it's not these great mass institutions anymore. Um, my my point is that you can't. Um, so that's a, that's a social phenomenon, which is, so it's true. Everything you say is true as far as it's going. I'm I'm saying in politics, there's there's a degree of consistency. I think it, it's to say to green voters that who might be in their fifties and sixties that they've spent the last thirty years lodging protest votes understates the fact that they actually know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, yeah and on the other hand, uh, people who spent twenty five years voting for. Pauline Hanson in whatever no, guys her party yeah. happens to be. I so don't think anybody's saying, well, I'm obviously not saying it's a protest vote if you voted for the Communist no. Party for 50 years and they only got 1% well, of the vote. You, you are definitely no, a no, communist. But this, yeah. the, and you're the, voting for a minor well, But in the Australian context, you're voting for a minor no, no, party. But this is that was the exact context of the article which prompted this, my <laughs> piece in The Spectator Australia. It's like, this proves that everyone's well, disconnected from Australian no, politics. But, but, I'm, but, saying, I'm saying they're not. They, but but they're, if you're a communist who's voted for the Communist Party for 50 years, you are dissatisfied with the major parties, aren't you? But, you know, you're, but you're, not, you're, not, you're not saying you're dissatisfied with the system. My you argument, my argument you're is... You're using the system to express your views. I can tell you, I'll admit this, I wasn't you satisfied. Communist? I, no, <laughs> um, no, I'm not. I'm not quite that crazy. I, I but I wasn't. I, I live in Melbourne Port. Oh, sorry, McNamara. McNamara. Um, yeah. And uh, I voted for Clive Palmer's candidate. Did you really? More or less blindly. Do you know who they are? <laughs> Good work. Um, and it was because I wasn't satisfied with the choice. So that was a three-cornered mm. contest, or supposed to be, but the Liberal candidate mm. dramatically underperformed, and it. Because it was a three-corner contest, I thought, look, I can't just spoil my ballot. Like, and I don't. I actually don't support spoiling your ba- mm. ballot anyway. Thought, well, I'll do it. But I knew that I could put Clive's candidate. I uh, I don't know. I can't. Helen Patton. Helen Patton. <laughs> As I Google it. Uh, rapidly. Peyton. Peyton. Uh, and I knew I could vote for her, mm. but because the Australian system being what it is, I also knew I could put the Liberal number two, and it wouldn't matter. Mm. So. Well, I mean, just, just to be clear, Andrew, just to be clear, Helen Payton is an advocate for government policy to improve conditions for everyday working Australians and vulnerable Australians who need support, such as aged pensioners and young people. You must be candidate. Well, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing objectionable in that. I, I also, I also think that running in Melbourne ports on a on a campaign of uh, taking back control of the ports is is not actually the the worst policy, but the. Um, I, I did it because I knew, and this is this goes to Scott's point, I think, that the institutionalisation of minor parties, parties that are further away from the mainstream, um, is is a function of preferential voting. You know, it's co- it's a cost free way of saying, run a better candidate. You know, I mean, because and I have this theory. I mean, we've been to, like, there's been a lot of electoral analysis in the last in the last week, and what we've seen in these inner city 
Melbourne seats, in particular in Melbourne, is this this idea that the seats are changing, that all of the professionals who live there that used to vote Liberal have changed their minds. Um, I don't think that's true. I think what we've seen is a process of internal migration because of densification. I think people have brought their preferences with them to the seats. But because that hasn't been widely acknowledged, the Liberal Party thinks it has to chase its voters to the left by running quasi-green and left-wing candidates in places like McNamara, like uh, Higgins, uh, it think, in particular Higgins, it thinks that uh, it has to do that. My view is if you look at Curtin um, WA. in WA, where you had a considerably more conservative candidate, conservative Catholic candidate, the swing against her was the same as the swing against Katie Allen in Higgins, which suggests to me that they don't need to chase these voters. And I think that's, being, I think that's part of what's being institutionalised, is people saying, your party, your major party, your mainstream party, your appeal is to this broad base, and we're going to keep you to that. We're going to hold you to the promises you've made to your base. Don't go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> you can sing that. Um, actually, that's a whole hypothesis, which we should come back to on the, um, on the podcast. And we have, a, we have a research brief coming out about that, I believe. Good. No, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely link to that uh, as soon as it comes out. Uh, th- for those who are definitely dissatisfied with the political system, one option you have is protest. We saw a lot of that going on in the election, uh, the con- the, including convoys to central Queensland, people gluing themselves to various public buildings and otherwise on various issues. Um, Chris Berg, what's the latest proposal on the table? Yeah, so um, in the wake of the election, there have been some calls from, um, uh, particularly in Queensland, Queensland federal MPs have called for serial activists, serial protesters who receive welfare or the New Start Allowance in particular to have their welfare quarantined as well as tax reform to stop foreign companies propping up professional activism. Obviously, we've had these waves of protest around Adani. There's this idea that there's a group or cohort of, quote, professional protesters and um, a number of MPs and a number of people in the community apparently believe that they should lose their welfare. The Social Services Minister, Paul Fletcher, responded to this by saying that Newstart New Start, the welfare program, is funded by taxpayers who would expect recipients to use it for its intended purpose of supporting them while they look for work, not supporting them in a lifestyle of being a full-time protester. Um, My view on this is this is actually pretty cheap populist politics. I think it's deeply concerning that we might use the welfare system as a social engineering tool any more than it has to be. Um, And the idea that that, you know, if there are serious problems with welfare, if there are serious problems with work requirements, they should be tackled generally, not just trying to pick on people who do things that we don't like. But Andrew, I know you disagree quite strongly with this view. I have the view that we <laughs> we tend to stop paying unemployment benefits to people once they become employed. Now, it seems to me that some of these people do have a job. It's just not particularly lucrative. And in that case... Well, perhaps they've opted out of searching for a job uh, or for a job that will be more remunerative, more lucrative than uh, the welfare system. I'm not sure that we should be setting up an incentive uh, where we're essentially paying people who don't work to protest against people who want to work. Uh, I think, you know, I think that's kind of a bizarre uh, incentive that we're creating where it can be the case that the rest of us subsidise full-time political activity for uh, fringe groups who and, and the effect of that down will, will affect, you know, the people who we actually should be supporting with government policy, which is working people. I don't think anybody defends people on Newstart you know, not looking for a job. Obviously, if you're receiving Newstart, you should be looking for a job. However, in the context of the federal election, I would say there were a vast numbers, more people probably are being paid for by taxpayers than if the protesters at Adani. I think there were probably a lot of politicians and politician staff who spent a lot of time uh, campaigning on issues related to the federal election uh, or fully funded by, by taxpayers. So I think we need to be careful of, you know, 
what we do here because you might, you might want to uh, look at that too as well as another factor. What we're actually talking about here is not changing the law, it's actually enforcing the law, and, and the th- the, which is an issue with, you know, pro- protests generally, uh, which, you know, which is, you know, laws against trespass and all kinds of things are just never enforced in this country. And, you know, New Start has requirement that you are available yeah. for work. Now, popping up to the odd protest is is one thing because you could probably still argue that you're available for work. But, I mean, something like, say, uh, when the protest against uh, Santos's um, gas development at Narrabri, which is back on the table or should be back on the table um, uh, under the, uh, the New South Wales government because they desperately need that gas and should get on with it. They had a, virtually a city set up uh, to protest against that with you know close to a thousand oh, people. If you are traveling that saying, far, if you're jumping in a car with you your are mates, not available for work, yeah, but, then but, there is a very right, strong so presumption that you are not looking for work. I put it to you that this is a thing that doesn't exist. Yeah, we don't so, know these people are on news. <laughs> so, so, so the, like the this was this was published. So this story yeah. was published in the Sunday Mail in um in Brisbane, and the and it has this. Wonderful little writer. They they profile a whole bunch yeah. of people and they point out that the Sunday Mail does not suggest that any of the protesters named or pictured in this yeah, story are living oh, in and, New and, Start. And no, so 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 the more so the more so the more general <laughs> yeah. point the more general point is if there's no reason to believe that any of these people are actually on New Start, maybe they are, maybe they are, and maybe there's one bloke who's on New Start who's just living it up and having a great time and somehow mm. avoiding their obligations. Um, if this has been completely made up, then why are we spend like why would you spend so much time? The coalition won. Mm. We Adani's uh, um, everybody's on the back foot. The left is on the back foot about Adani. Why do we just the coalition won the election? Why smack down the opposition when you've won? It's because they're so noisy. I mean, well, this well, is, the thing, so is it just that I'm annoyed? No, no, no. Protest. It's, 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 because, it's, be, it's because it, it contributes to this uh, this amplification of a particular class of people who control media, who control journalism, they control academia. But that's just noise. It makes that's no, 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 no. It's Turns not up. just noise. It makes it seem like it makes it seem like their opinion matters, and it does. Not. This was the thing. Malcolm Turnbull didn't just destroy the Liberal Party or come close. He came very close to destroying the Labor Party as well by convincing them <laughs> to work. by convincing him by convincing them that there was an emerging consensus around Wentworth politics. There is no such consensus. That's why people get annoyed about this, because why should I be subsidising the amplification of marginal voices who want to do nothing other than destroy the lives of working class people who, from a political economy perspective, the centre-right increasingly relies upon. But we have, I mean, so uh, I'll shelve the, p- the point that we have no reason to believe that we are actually no, no. subsidising no, no, these people. We do it with like university subsidies. Univers- yeah, no, no. Well, no, it's important that the government funds blockchain research. That's that's a really key thing, mm. I think. Um, uh, no, but there's, there is actually, in a liberal society... I, I, I shelving the point about Newstart in a liberal society, we do actually have the right to protest, even if we're di- directed by bad ideas. And I'm deeply concerned that we would be cracking down on legal protests. I think that if you do something illegal while you are protesting, mm-hmm. if you chain yourself to private property, then you should be fo- removed by the police and all that sort of thing. But there mm-hmm. is nothing wrong in a liberal society with protesting things you do not like. And the right, the center right, mm-hmm. takes advantage of that when it feels the need to get out and and protest things that are that are bad. I, mm-hmm. That is a good thing. That is a healthy democratic society even if we think they're protesting against jobs which, no, are, which I, I, I take, take that point. point i think there's an element of tit for tat here so there's this you know increasing culture of uh censoriousness um you know that has affected um uh people on on the conservative side of politics and i think there's an element of tit for tat here it's like well you know if we can't if we can't have a speaker come to a university campus, then you can't camp out the front of our mine. Um, <laughs> and, and so perhaps perhaps it is a sign of uh, this kind of, and we, we've spoken about this a lot, this kind of breakdown of the norm of not just free speech in a formal sense, but the idea that you might tolerate dissenting views in the hope that you might benefit from it. I don't actually, my, my personal view about freedom of speech, I think that the most important argument for freedom of speech, freedom of protest, um, is that when people die, 
aren't free to mouth off, they tend to do much worse things. So I, I, I think there's a basic harm. Let, the, let these poor argument. people just yeah, well, exactly. I don't want I don't want them I don't want them um, you know blowing up tractors instead of waving placards. So I, t- I definitely take that point, uh, Chris. But I, I do think, and, and I do think there's a, a tit for tat here. But I do I, I just think that there's this this concern that there's this, uh, this kind of, um, what do they what do they call it? Commu- like uh, community organising that is run by people who are like kind of quasi-professionals. Like this is actually their job is just yeah. to rabble rouse on the left and prevent productive activity. But that's, and I, think, and, but and that's I think that, I mean, I think that's sort of the, the I reckon, you know, a lot of these demonstrations, you know, if this demonstration had taken place 30 or 40 years ago, I'm sure a lot of these people would have been on the dole and so forth. I think that one of the key changes is how well funded a lot of these environmental groups now are. You know, organisations like Get Up and the other thing. I spent a fair bit of the federal election campaign in, in Kuyong and I was amazed at the amount of resources, not just that the Greens were able to deploy in Kuyong, but Oliver Yates and, and the number of supporters that he had and from what institutions that the people handing out, because not only there was, you know, Greens, there was Oliver Yates, there were other environmental groups there as well. Now, they they were all very well resourced and most of the people handing out looked like they, they weren't on Newstart. But yeah, I, I, that, that, I, so yeah. doesn't offend me. Good luck. Yeah, yeah I know. Good, I'm, good, I'm good saying. Good but him, yeah, so yeah, I think George, it's a... If George Soros wants to... Yeah. Money in the green groups yeah. all over the world, that's his, that's yeah. his business. And that's the thing. I, so I think... But this, just don't reach into my so, kick. So I just think this is a bit of a... You know, a, a false track to be worrying about, really, because I think it's more, the, the, it's actually more interesting how well resourced they are from other sources, not from the the, the taxpayer in that way, anyway. And uh, just one to watch, by the way, in that Courier Mail article that uh, Chris was quoting from, we talked on looking forward about a month ago about the uh, the farm invasions, and the Morrison government has actually pledged uh, to pass laws on. Uh, Saying that you, they will ban the ability to post the addresses of farms, which is the, you know the current tactic on the uh, it, on the website. It so has Scott, and so um, uh, the quote in the Korea Mail, the Sunday um, Mail, is that Prime Minister Scott Morrison will introduce laws to see activists jailed for up to a year if they use a carriage service to publish the addresses of farms for the purpose of protest. Now, using a carriage service, so that's basically putting something on the internet. You can use a carriage service to talk on the phone but put stuff on the internet to publish addresses of farms i think this is another sign that the government is um, deeply opposed to digital rights to freedom of speech on the internet Um, i'm not wrapped in uh, the farm protests and i think they were very counterproductive that happened um, a month or two back but the idea that we would be jailing people for up to a year for publishing publicly available information is horrifying that's what that's that's why i threw to it because i thought well it's close on a note we can let's, agree let's on. close on a horrifying <laughs> note about how bad because, the government is. Because uh, if they just invo- enforce, enforce in, uh, existing laws, they wouldn't need to worry about that quite so much. We have come to that part of Looking Forward, where we uh, our books and culture segment, where we talk about what we've been watching, reading or listening to. Who would like to start us off? So I have been watching the TV show Chernobyl, which is um, aired on Foxtel in Australia. Chernobyl, it's a... Um, uh, it's a fictionalised um, version of the Chernobyl disaster. It being described by a lot of people in the press as if you've finished watching Game of Thrones, you should start watching Chernobyl as one of these extremely high quality um, television events. It is amazing. So I, I've actually, um, careful listeners of the show will um, remember that I um, spoke about a book called Midnight at Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham that I read a couple of months ago, this is a um, incredibly detailed, incredibly realistic, um, uh, fictionalized version of the Chernobyl disaster. It's got horror elements in it. Um, it's very um, uh, shows you the deep bureaucratic nature of the Soviet Union. It's driven by what I think is basically a buddy cop performance by two of my favorite actors, Jared Harris, who people might remember from Mad Men, and he was Moriarty in the Sherlock. Holmes movies and um, Stellan Skarsgård. It is it, it is just a, a brilliant thing. I haven't watched all of it yet because it hasn't all been aired. I think the fourth episode is being aired in the United States this week. It's also got a great um, soundtrack. So um, one of my favourite artists uh, who I'm going to try to pronounce, I think she's an Icelandic artist, Hilda Gunadatta. Uh, she um, wrote the score. She's released one of the um, tracks called The Bridge of Death. So it's an amazing 
dark ambient soundtrack, which is exactly what I listen when to. When I, I saw that, when I saw the ads for this, I thought, um, putting my conspiracy theory hat on, I thought that isn't it interesting <laughs> that at a time when uh, it looks like there's a bigger push for nuclear energy than there has <laughs> been in a number of years, and we know that the left has an ideological. Uh, opposition to nuclear energy, notwithstanding that we're 12 years away from the end of the world or whatever. Um, and I thought, when I saw the ads for this, I thought, geez, they work. Don't they work? But no, come well, on. I'm going to give you a completely the, the counter left, their media I'm going to give you a different conspiracy theory that's the opposite <laughs> of that. Isn't it interesting? In the middle of all these debates about how we need socialism to fix the environment, socialism was a a complete catastrophe for the environment because the story about Chernobyl is not about whether nuclear power is safe or not. It's about whether a socialist bureaucratic system is capable of managing um, uh, you know, high-tech scientific energy like this because the Chernobyl disaster, th- these were out-of-date reactors when they were built. The United States moved away from these reactor designs decades before the um, Soviet Union was building new ones and bigger ones and more unstable ones. Um, uh, I actually think this is a and, – and, and the show really underlines this um, – this is a disaster of bureaucratic socialism. Amen to that. <laughs> Bushy. Uh, so I thought I'd do something a, li- a little bit different this week because I normally, I'm normally the one who talks about whatever TV I've been watching, but I'm, I'm a little bit behind on, on some of my projects, so I haven't actually been watching a lot of TV. I thought I would talk about a book that I'm uh, reading um, as part of my studies, um, and it's by um, a guy named uh, Adrian Vermeule, who's a, a legal philosopher at Harvard. Uh, so he's a professor of law, but like this is a, this is definitely in legal philosophy, not black letter law. Um, and he's a he's an interesting guy, Vermeule. So he's uh, if you he's a great follow on, follow on Twitter. If you're on if you're on Twitter, definitely get around following Adrian Vermeule. It will open your eyes to the world of weird Catholic Twitter. <laughs> he is uh, a, what's known as a Catholic integralist, or he has become this. So he promotes this idea that. Um, Given that the, the the supposed neutrality of the liberal state is false, then there ought to be uh, religious sentiment embodied in the in the function of the state. And because he's Catholic, naturally he supports that. Um, but the book is called "The System of the Constitution," and I, I wanted to talk about this because it touches on a lot of the things that um, the philosophy that underlies a lot of the issues that we've been talking about. Um, so his book is about it applies systems analysis to in particular the u.s constitution but really just how constitutions work and systems analysis is this idea that there's two levels of analysis that you can do you can look at individual individual institutions in particular and then you can look at how they aggregate into a system and it can be the case that uh, notwithstanding the different uh, individual attributes that the institutions have, they have a better overall effect or a worse overall effect than you might think. And he goes through like what uh, what he calls a, a fallacy of composition, which is the idea that um, because all of the particulars have the same characteristics, then the system will have those characteristics. And then the reverse is a fallacy of division, which is where if you've designed a system with particular so, so this is the old characteristics. Ho- the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yes. and it, it, You it's, create something new when you put them together. Yeah, and what's, what's interesting about this is that it's kind of a, a response in a way to the idea of emergent order um, because what it, what it says is that it's not quite as easy to just to aggregate individual acts into a system, that there's all these other... Um, almost sort of game theoretical things that take place within the system that make the system overall different. And the reason I say that this ties to, to make this less abstract, (laughs) the reason I think that this ties to what we've been talking about is that the debate that's really going on, I think, in the in the center right and and where someone like say Tucker Carlson comes from when he says like the question about free markets isn't whether they are deducted from uh, first principles, but whether they're good for people is that there's been a failure, I think, or certainly Vermeule would say there's been a failure to reckon with system effects so that when we talk about individual institutions having particular characteristics, say, um, you know, the, the bedrock liberal principles, it could be the case that you end up with a less liberal system overall. Um, and so what the debate is on the, on the centre-right, I think, is that there's this... And what unites it with the critique on the centre-left uh, is that there's this increasing... 
uh, concern that we have overlooked this two-level analysis between systems and particulars. I think that's super weird because that's precisely, or not precisely, but that's very much how I could describe the emergent order of the market as an evolutionary system where you might look at individual parts of the system. So you might look at individual um, trading relationships and think, oh, this is a bit counterproductive. But in fact, it works as a system because it's set up to respond to changes to it's set up to respond to and create new ideas and evolve and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, he talks about the, the free market and what he says is that, um, you know, firstly that other, other systems don't have prices. So the coordinating mechanism that we rely on in is the market protests um, <laughs> is that, and it, he says that, there, that there's no, there's no functional equivalent in other, in other systems. Um, and he also talks about what he calls invisible hand reasoning and how it is that it's not always the case that what we would think of as the natural aggregation of things actually produces um, a, a system that can be described in terms of those things. It, mm. I will go next, and then uh, because I've been reading, uh, sorry, watching uh, the new adaptation of Joseph Heller's novel Catch Twenty Two on uh, just for a change, Andrew, not on Netflix, actually on Stan. <laughs> oh, right. Big big difference. Ooh, who, can, who can who can afford to have both? Uh, for one screen, oh. you can do it for ten bucks some a month. Kept, and the, some of us kept paid ten bucks. No, the kid, <laughs> the kid, no, anything for a quiet life. The, kid, the kids were at me for about six months, and I finally gave up. Um, and I've cut back Fox, Foxtel now that Game of Thrones is finished. Um, uh, Joseph Heller's novel was published in 1961. It was based on his wartime experience uh, as a, a bombardier. Um, dropping uh, mass tons of explosives over Germany from a base in Italy. Uh, it's in the great tradition of satirical novels about war. It didn't surprise me. I tried to read it about 30 years ago and got completely lost. <laughs> it had no context and it. it's got shifting timelines and overlapping characters and it was all too much for my tiny brain. Um, but I was aware, you know. But I was aware of this idea of it was in that, you know, a bit like Mash, perhaps a real satire. And I wasn't surprised to read that um, uh, Heller was very much influenced by uh, Kafka and also um, uh, the Good Soldier Schweik, the great Central European mm. novel of the stupidity of war. So I was expecting a real satire, but this six-part series on on um, Stan really uh, and it's got George Clooney directed produced uh, and plays a part in it he played it for laughs he's one of the finest comic actors of our like last two decades yeah he's Easily. absolutely Easily. awesome and he for me was the comic highlight of the whole thing yeah. and about the only satirical part I could <laughs> I could I could find but he is just an inherently funny person he is and 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 he's great so many of his movies involve close-ups of his own face. <laughs> the things he can do with his face. The uh, the, the he, thing about Catch Twenty Two is, and I'm a huge. Oh, we were fan just of talking about George Clooney. So. Okay, so, <laughs> the, 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 I'm a huge fan of the book, and the, um, it's actually it's actually riven with these kind of uh, system paradoxes. So no, no, it's true. It's true. It's so, so early on, early in the book, he says, the doctor, the one of his doctors says to Yosarian, uh, the protagonist of this novel, he says, um, what he says, Yosarian says, look, I don't want to, I don't want to fight. I want to fly the bomber anymore. And the doctor says to him, well, what if everyone thought that way? And he said, "Well, then I'd be a damn fool not to." <laughs> and it's it's the kind of a paradox of this that once once you change the level of analysis, once you scale it up, mm. actually what be, what is sensible from a sort of a game theoretical point of view changes. Uh, anyway, the, and the book is just full of those kinds of paradoxes. Yeah, and what really comes through in the movie, and of course the the famous catch twenty two is uh, you you can apply for medical discharge on the grounds of insanity, but if you've managed to fill out an application form, then clearly you, you're not insane because you know that it'd be really good not to yeah. die in a war. So that's the fa uh, form twenty two catch twenty two, and um, yeah, and yeah, Heller loves the the paradoxes, but uh, that's why why it was so affecting for me was. There are satirical elements and, 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 and funny asides, but it's, yeah, it's when you're trapped in that system and, you know, it made me think of, you know, say the Rand Paul, you know, this, this is what war looks like. You are trapped in a system beyond your comprehension and uh, the nurse says says to Yasarian, you know, it, it is a law of human nature that war concentrates power in the hands of those most likely to abuse it. 
which is not something a nurse normally says <laughs> when you're in a hospital, but it was, you know, that's that's the thing of the movie. Um, but yes, he's, he's very much trapped in it. And every attempt to break the system, to, to make an intervention which might change the rules of the game, usually leads to somebody else being killed. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> but you can still watch it. And, uh, and so it actually plays as tragedy. So credit to George Clooney because he's played his own character for laughs. And, um, and Hugh Laurie is in there as well as some sort of bumbling idiot. Um, so a few gratuitous laughs and everything else plays as tragedy. I was actually deeply moved by the whole thing. So I do I do actually recommend it. Well, my turn now. Well, I've read a couple of books uh, lately. Um, well, I was looking at Australia in the 1970s by reading a uh, Autobiography by John Paul Young, but for today I'll go back a little bit further. <laughs> next, to, next time you're on the show. Next mate. time I'm on the show, I'll talk about John Paul Young. But today we're going to talk about um, Robert Menzies, and Troy Branson's written a terrific new biography of Robert Menzies. Um, it's important to bear in mind this biography is only a bit over 300 pages so it's not a, a huge um, work it's certainly it's oh. half the size of Bramston's biography of I Paul may King have used the word monumental yes and that's what sort Whoops. of made, okay. made me think because it, it's not really that monumental <laughs> it's a it's a very good book but it's not the big monumental biography that you, you might um, think. I think it's fascinating that um, this is Troy Bramston's, obviously people would know Troy Bramston, and he's a columnist in the Australia and author of other books, a person from a Labor background, and his previous books have uh, reflected that background. So this is the first time he's, if you like, jumped the aisle and tackled a Liberal subject. And um, as you would expect, Bramston disagrees with some things that Menzies um, did. For instance, some examples, sewers, involvement in the Vietnam uh, War, failure to address, change the white Australia policy, the fact that that was left more for Harold Holt to do immediately after uh, Menzies um, departed. But nonetheless, it's a very, as you expect from Bramston, he, he he's explicit when he's um, disagrees, but he's also tries to be fair, and we get a lot of um, uh, you know the balance that you would would expect. And part of the theme of the work is that Menzies operated in an era where people were able to communicate across the political divide. Um, that Menzies, with most of the Labor leaders of his time, actually even classified them as friends. Um, he had very good relationships with Curtin, Chifley. Call. He didn't have such a good relationship with Doc Evatt, um, and anybody who sort of has read anything about the personality of Doc Evatt would probably <laughs> understand, understand that, uh, yep. why that was um, the case. Um, the thing that Bramston has, which is, um, I suppose, new um, source material, he's gained access to some interviews which were conducted by a woman called Frances uh, McNichol, who in the early 70s got given the opportunity to be the authorised biographer of uh, Menzies. Um, she did a number of interviews with Menzies um, as part of this, uh, but never got to the stage of actually producing a book. So there's all this um, source material that's been sort of sitting there um, quietly hidden away, which um, now uh, Bramston's got the opportunity to use. And that provides some insights, particularly of Menzies' reflections on parts of uh, his career, uh, looking back and reflecting on a bit on what happened after his career uh, ended as well and obviously um, things sort of deteriorated very much for the um, coalition after his departure. Is, is there anything that Scott Morrison might glean from this book about well, what he should do? Not, no, I don't th- I mean, I don't think that I think part of what the book really captures is how oh, different the, the era, era was. Um, there's, you know, there are some things about the art of, of politics, but um, things like um, I don't. Menzies used to usually come into the office about ten a.m. Um, now I don't know if Scott Morrison would be up for a late start like that. <laughs> uh, now that's not to say Menzies didn't work hard. He often worked till you know midnight and so forth. Work, but he liked to have a leisurely start to the day. Now, obviously, in the modern era, that's not something that politicians can can do so much. Where, so, where does Bramston fall on the? I mean, the debate within the Liberal party is often was Menzies a liberal or a conservative mm. and and traditionally this has been a dispute by between George Brandis on the liberal yeah, side and yeah. um uh, and Tony Abbott for instance yeah, on the yeah. conservative side yeah i think bramston doesn't particularly take sides on that sort of debate and in fact you, there is not you know a huge you know while he touches on all the important things he doesn't go into any great depth you know um obviously one of the great things is you know Menzies allowed McEwen to 
set up McEwenism, if you like, the, the, that era sort of it was a very protectionist era and so forth. And while that's there, there's not a you know an in-depth analysis of a lot of those things. Um, Bramston's very interested in the art of politics, so he does talk a bit about how, and this is probably I suppose for any leader, how you handle a cabinet and how you take make sure that you know different views are taken into account. And so there probably are some things that have universal benefit for leaders, but also the 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 world we live in is so different to the world of the fifties and sixties in terms of the media pressures and so forth um, that it. Um, a lot of things are a bit hard to, to translate. I mean, the other thing that I suppose it, we all know of the Menzies story is, um, and probably does apply to a lot of politicians, John Howard would be another example of this, is somebody who um, got an, an opportunity early on to lead and perhaps made some mistakes and um, and then had to go away and learn from those mistakes, which Menzies did, you know, to such a degree that he created a new political party to deliver and captured the ethos of the time so well with that whole, you know, the forgotten people uh, concept um, and pleasingly the IPA does get mentioned in the, in oh, the work, you know, know, in terms oh, yes. of the setting up of the Liberal Party you, and, CD Kemp and CD Camp and all that. So that's that's an important thing. And so I think we're saying the lesson there is less for Scott Morrison and more for Tony Abbott. Or Bill Shorten, no, I Bill Shorten. I think clearly, you know, maybe does see perhaps himself making a comeback at some stage. So, but look, as I say, it might not be monumental, might not be the word for it, but it's a very and being obviously a bit over three hundred pages, very accessible for people to read and very well and clearly written. So, I'd encourage everybody to go and read that and learn about how politics was conducted in in a, in a different era, where other than the DLP, there were fewer minor parties too. Yes, yeah, that's right. Other than yeah, the DLP, yeah. but they lasted twenty years yeah, too. That's, yeah. that's institutionalisation. No, 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 no. Very good and uh, happy, happy to give a, a, a plug to a book of uh, general interest. Uh, we'll have links uh, to that book and the other shows and books that we've been talking about uh, in the notes field of the podcast, uh, which, of course, you, if you're listening to it on your podcast platform, do make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss further editions of the IPAs looking forward. While you're there, also subscribe to the Young IPA podcast with uh, James Bolt and Pete Gregory because that's awesome. Uh, if you'd like to support the research this podcast all our podcasts please go to ipa.org.au learn more about the IPA join or donate Uh, that's all good Um, big thank you to our panellists today Dr Chris Berg thanks Scott Richard Orsop thank you Scott Andrew Bushnell thank you and of course the aforementioned James Bolt our wonderful producer we'll be back with more looking forward next week